It's a good climb, isn't it? But you know what? When you get about halfway up, if you're someone like me, it's... Oh! And resting and pausing and drinking water and sweating rivers of sweat. And it's agony climbing Bluff Knoll if you're as out of shape as I am. <laughs> Horrible. And, and a few times as I was climbing it, I thought, you know what? This is pretty high. Maybe I should just stop here. You know, I can say I've climbed most of Bluff Knoll. I'll, I'll just stop. But you know, I pressed on because I, I, I knew that when I got to the top of that mountain, the view from there would be absolutely breathtaking. And I'm not too keen on heights, so it really did take my breath away, but, but it was breathtaking. I endured the agony of the climb because the glory of the view was so very much worth it. And that's what we're going to look at today, the glory and the suffering. Or as the bulletin puts it, the groaning and the glory. Turn with me, if you would, to, to Romans chapter 8. We're going to read from verse 18 to verse 30. Brilliant, brilliant passage. I consider that our present suffering... Well, no, sorry. Let's, let's back up a bit. Let's go to verse 16. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Hallelujah. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory, and I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts well, he knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Wow! <laughs> you know, I almost want to just read that again because it is so brilliant. But do you know what? We get to that end, little bit of Romans 8, and I think Lennis was planning to read it. 
at the end of the service and we get to the nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And this is wonderful stuff and it's, oh, it's so fantastic. And it's nothing can separate us, nothing can condemn us. And life is going to be cushy and good forever and ever. And we forget that what Paul is writing in Romans 8 is not just about glory, but about suffering and glory. It's about groaning and glory. What do we suffer now? Paul says in verse 17, If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, also heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. What are the sufferings of Christ in which we share? Looking at the world in the mess it's in. Anyone else? constant battle. Do you share in the sufferings of Christ? We know the right answer, don't we? That's to suffer for Christ is to be opposed by the world, is to have people hate us because we belong to Jesus. But to suffer like Christ is also to suffer with the fact that we are not redeemed is to endure temptation is to endure pain and heartache and loss and separation I mean when did Jesus suffer so many times probably the most Apart from the crucifixion, the most poignant time was was when he came to the tomb of Lazarus, his good friend, and he saw the death and he wept. Facing death and illness and disaster is part of suffering with Christ. So should we avoid that? Should we be saying, as Christians in the 21st, 21st century, living in Perth, Australia, we should be happy. Everyone say it after me. Happy. <laughs> we should be happy. Is that what Paul is saying? Of course not. And you know what? Happiness, as happiness goes, is not what Paul is on about at all. You see, suffering is not the opposite of happiness. Suffering doesn't even compare to happiness. When we're talking temporarily. Because you know what? The message of Romans 8, I believe, is that God says, although you now suffer, I want you to be happy completely. Throw a different word in there. I want you to know joy. (laughs) I want you to know peace. I want you to know life. So what is the ultimate source of our joy? Christ. And what is Christ? Christ glorified. 
You see, what, what I believe what God is saying to us here is, you will endure suffering, you will be like Christ in His suffering, so that you may also share in His glory. What is His glory? His glory. His glory is His reputation. His glory is what happens when you stand before God and you just go, oh wow, that's God. <laughs> that is God, Wow! Uh, I don't think there's very much vocabulary when you experience glory. It's sort of, oh! You know, there's there's, there's a perverted shadow of it when you watch these TV shows and they've remade the room and people walk in and go, oh my God! That's a perversion of glory. It's it's like a, it's, it's something amazing and what do they do? It's just a wow! When you experience real glory, it's going to be, oh my God, wow. The splendor of God which will be revealed to us. Different translation which will be revealed for us. Another way to be, to be revealed in us. The glory of God revealed in us. Now God is pretty glorious. God is pretty amazing. And what gets me is what Paul says there, and he says it throughout the section of Romans, he says, the glory of God, the great one who is above all others, that when you come to him, you are left just, oh God, that same glory is our destiny and our purpose, and you and I, you and I, will share in the glory of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus. We will be made like him. And it's not going to be a case of, wow, Eric, you're so glorious. Not now, later. (laughs) It's going to be a case of, wow, Eric, you look like Jesus. Isn't he glorious? (laughs) Wow, John, you look like Jesus. Isn't he glorious? Debbie, all of us, you look like Jesus. Isn't he great? Isn't he fantastic? Glory is amazing. (laughs) And yet suffering is part of the picture. I mean, why do we suffer? We we mentioned a few things, but you know what? I think what Paul tells us in Romans 8 is that the biggest reason why we suffer is that God is not glorified as he ought to be glorified. We suffer because we know that God is not glorified the way he ought to be glorified. Because you know, when when our purpose is to glorify God, we're going to live differently. We're going to rub up against the world. We're going to say, God is the greatest. And they're going to say, no, I'm the greatest. That's where the friction comes in. That's where the opposition comes in. We're going to say, God is the best. He has to be the best. And if God's not the best... What's the point? And Paul, in just this amazing paragraph from verse 18, verse 19 rather, speaks about the first groaning. By the way, there's, there's sermon notes on your bulletin there. The first groaning, the groaning and the glory of creation. This is marvelous language that Paul uses. He says the whole of the creation, the the world, everything that God has created, 
is groaning. Is groaning and, and just longing for the day when God will be glorified as He ought to be glorified. There's a theologian named Cranfield. Let me just read you what he says. He says, The whole magnificent theater of the universe created for God's glory. That's why God made everything. God made the world so that He would be known as glorious. He didn't just make it on a whim. God made everything so that we would look to Him and say, God, You are great. The whole magnificent theater of the universe created for God's glory is cheated of its true fulfillment as long as mankind, the chief actor in the great drama of God's praise, fails to contribute his rational part. So God made the whole of the world to show his glory as it really is. We're supposed to look at the rain this morning and say, wow, isn't God great? He made it rain. We're supposed to stand on the top of Bluff Knoll and say, wow, God made all of this. In fact, Paul's already told us in the beginning of Romans 1 that, that what is seen shows us that there must be a God. There's, there's something of that, of that hinting of God's glory still in nature, but, but in, a, in a very real sense, the whole of creation, it's like it's been thwarted from showing how great God is by human sinfulness. Remember what happened back in, in Genesis where, where Adam and Eve did the bad thing and they, they chose to rebel against God? And God punished them and cast them out of the garden, but, but part of that cursing for sin was also a curse upon the land. And the land was going to be difficult to, to work and it would only produce thorns and thistles and it would be a pain and it would be a nuisance. And, and, and that's what Paul means when he says, you know, God put this whole creation under frustration. I get frustrated easily. But creation has been since that time going, I just want to glorify God and I can't because of this jolly curse. Wouldn't it be great if the children of God would be revealed and then everyone will look at me and say, God is great. Can you just imagine creation being frustrated? I mean, obviously, it's, it's nice poetic language because creation doesn't speak much. And creation here is everything. It's, it's everything that's not human. Just longing to be seen as appointed to the glory of God. In fact, the, the image Paul uses, the, the Phillips Bible, I believe, says that creation is standing on tiptoe looking for the children of God to be revealed, craning its neck. You just that, that sense of, oh, it's got to happen soon, it's got to happen, it's got to happen soon. Because it's frustrated. There's another way to, to translate that word frustration. It's actually the same word for vanity. I'm sure some of you know the quote from the teacher. Vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. 
meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's the same word. God subjected creation to meaninglessness, to vanity, to what a waste of time. If God's not being glorified, it's all meaningless. And you know, people who say, well, oh, we've, got to be, we, we've, got to, we've got to look for God in nature. You can't do that, it's meaningless. Until God reveals who His children are. Until then, everything that is just falls short of the glory of God. Pointing to the glory of God. Reminds us of what Paul has said, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Chapter 8, you know what? Because all have sinned, even creation doesn't reflect God's glory as it should. Creation is suffering. but there will be glory. Verse 21, brilliant verse. Creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. No longer will there be decay. You know what, there's, you know the, the, the physics law, the conservation of momentum. that? One. I might just grab some batteries from you anyway, Steve. You know, the, the physical law, the conservation of momentum, um, you push something, it There's opposition against it. And, and if you push something today, it'll eventually slow down because of the pressure of the air against it. Even in space, which isn't empty, there's, there's stuff, there's, there's holding it back. Its speed decays. And I think what Paul is saying here is that when the children of God are revealed, creation won't be held back. It, it won't be pushed back, there will be no decay, it'll just go for it, saying God is great, which is fantastic. And creation is going to be liberated into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Wonderful stuff. And there will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth and the dwelling place of God will be with us. A new heaven and a new earth. That's why creation is groaning. Because it's like childbirth, like the pains of childbirth. It's, it's just longing for the time of new creation. So creation is groaning. But we too groan. And I think what's interesting about our groaning...
if you don't look at the world around you and say, why is it so? Time to start reading the Bible more. As Christians, we have the Spirit in us. And Paul says we have the Spirit as the first fruits of glory. We have a taste of what is going to come. And, and you know what it's like when you have a taste? All of a sudden, when you've tasted the glory, you, you just see how unglorious everything else is. And you look at illness, and you think, Oh, Lord, this isn't right. And you look at suffering and you go, Lord, this isn't, this isn't glorious. And you look at pain and you say, God, how does, this, how does this glorify you? And you look at, at, at a, a person losing their child or a child losing their father. Just over these holidays, we've already heard so many stories of well, up north in the state, that father who died trying to save his child. Victoria, the, the kid playing on the train tracks, died. And, and you know what? I, I believe the Christian response to that is one of groaning. Lord, how long until this is done away with? Because this is not right. I know your glory. I've seen how fantastic you are. And this stands smack in the face of that. And, and, and Lord, this just doesn't reflect your glory. How long, oh Lord? And, and in a way, what's the other thing the Spirit does is He, he frustrates us. <laughs> when we look at ourselves as He convicts us of sin and we, we just say, Lord, I've seen your glory. I know your promise that I will one day share your glory and yet that I live my life and Lord, it's not as it should be. And we groan with that sense of, oh, I just want Jesus to come and I want my resurrection body and I want to be adopted as a child of God and I just want it to be as it should be because it's not as it should be. God, it's not as it should be. Which is the same thing creation is crying. It's, it's not as it should be. And Christians joining and saying, yes, it's not as it should be. We have seen your glory, and this is not right. We have been saved in hope. We have been saved in hope that one day we will be fully and ultimately redeemed, and God will come to us and say, Greetings, my child. You are now adopted, and we are living together. No longer am I here and you there. We are together. That, that picture of Revelation of the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven and, and coming down on earth and, and the dwelling place of God being with humanity and, and there's just glory and it's glowing and there's, there's no darkness, there's no fear, there's nothing bad. And, 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 and that is what we long for. And Paul uses two, two words to describe how we should be waiting for that. He says in verse 23 that we should be waiting eagerly. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption. 
But we also are told in verse 25 that we should wait patiently for our adoption. You know, some Christians get so eager and so impatient that they decide we're going to bring heaven on earth whether God wants it or not. Stupid, exactly. But it happens. Some Christians decide, well, you know, just got to be patient. God will do it whenever he wants. And they've lost that, that eagerness that, oh, it's got to happen soon. We're supposed to be waiting with eager impatience. Eager impatience. Not so eagerly that we lose our patience, but not so patiently that we stop being eager. Creation groans longing for that day. We who have the Spirit realize that things are not right. We groan longing for that day. You know the thing which blows me away in verses 26 and 27 is that God himself, the Holy Spirit, groans within us. Paul says, you know, uh, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we don't know what to pray, he, he, he prays for us with, with these groans that, that, you know, you can't understand, these, these unspoken groans. Uh, you know, Paul uses the same word three times. It's probably meaning the same thing. What is the Spirit groaning for? The Spirit is groaning for the glory of God to be revealed. We don't know what to pray. The Spirit says, I pray that God's glory would be revealed. However that works, we, we, however that comes out in the current situation, I pray that God's glory would be revealed. Spirit groans within us. In accordance with the will of God. And what is the will of God? What, what is God's will? Well, you probably already guessed, I think God's will is that His glory be revealed. God wants everyone to see how great God is. And as I heard somebody say, you know what? It's not egotistical for God to want everyone to know how great He is because God really is the greatest. So if He is the greatest, it's right that we should all know that He is the greatest. That is God's will. That is God's purpose. That is why creation groans. That is why we who have the Spirit groans. That is why the Spirit Himself groans because everyone, uh, we want to see God known as the greatest. We want to see Him glorified. And Paul gives us some more explanation of why or what the will of the Father is, what the, the groaning is all about. Verse 28 gives us five, five different things. He says to us, God works in our lives. God has a plan. God has a purpose. We're told that God works for the good of His people. so much I could say about that verse. <laughs> uh, let me just suffice to say that when it says God works for the good, it doesn't mean everything will come out in the wash, it will all be okay in the end. What it means is that God works for the ultimate good, which is that God be glorified and that we be glorified in Him. Um, however, God does work for our materialistic good as well because He's a great Father and when we ask, He gives us. Jesus has a wonderful parable about that when 
If your father, if your child asks you for a piece of bread, will you give him a rock? Of course not. And your father gives good things as well. Anyway, so God gives and works for the ultimate good of his people. Everything is under his control. All things work together for good. For everyone? No. Christians. That that is, humanly speaking, for those who love God, and divinely speaking, those whom He has called according to His purpose. And, And I love the way He gives those two definitions of what a Christian is, because we love God because He first loved us. And Paul goes on, almost done, um, Verse 29, he says, let, let me just explain what that means. The first word, not translated in the NIV, but it's, verse 29 begins with a four. It says, God works all things together for good of those who love him. That is, those who are called according to his purpose. For, because, verse 29, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And you're looking at your watches going, he's already six minutes over time. Now he's about to start in predestination. How long is he going to go for? Not long. God for you. God works together all things because God for you. You know, if you go through the Old Testament, when, when we hear of God foreknowing, it's got the overtones of God saying, I choose to love. I choose to love. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God foreknew is God saying, I choose to love. Deuteronomy 7, 7, the Lord did not set up his affection on Israel and choose Israel because they were more numerous than other peoples. It was because the Lord loved Israel. So we could actually put that because, verse 29, God works all things together for the good of those who love him, that is, those who are called according to his purpose, because God for loved these people. Decided way back and said, I will be in relationship with you. And those God for loved, He chose, he, he predestined to be like Jesus. That Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Look, this is a whole complex topic. Uh, People have been debating predestination and what exactly it means for thousands of years (laughs) now, actually. And and I think we need to have a little bit of humility when I talk about it. So bear in mind, this is my stumbling attempts to summarize 2,000 years. In fact, I'm not even going to summarize it. Just, Just say one thing. Romans is quite clear. God 
four chooses, four loves, says, I will enter into a relationship with you, and I will decide to make you like my son. God predestines. Done. Sorted. Um, that doesn't mean that we are denied all responsibility. Uh, in fact, the Bible and Romans in particular is very strong on, on faith and believing and, and choosing to follow God. And, um, John Stott is his, probably the, the clearest guy I've, I've found on this. He, he says there's an antinomy at work here. It's not antimony. Antimony is, uh, no, let me get it right. Antinomy, not antimony. Antimony is a kind of metal or something weird. Antinomy is like a paradox. It's where you've got facts, and, and they come together, um, and the only way that you can resolve the paradox, it seems like they're opposed to each other, the only way that you can resolve it is to deny one of the two things. And, and they're both true, but they seem to be opposed, and we're just standing back going, huh? don't understand. That's, that's, that's predestination and human responsibility. Bible is quite clear. God chooses us. God chooses you. God predestines. Bible is also quite clear. Humans have a responsibility to believe in God. Um, uh, John Stott picks up uh, John 5, 40, where Jesus says, you refuse to come to me to have life. And then he turns to John 6, 44, and he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him near. And, uh, and he just says, well, what's the case here? So the people don't come to Jesus because they don't want to or because they can't. And I think John Stott is very wise, and he says, yes. <laughs> yes. Let's leave it there. Because, you know, reading Romans 8, we're not supposed to get to verse 29 and go, oh, let's debate foreknowledge and predestination. You know what Paul is writing here? He's saying there is suffering in this world. God's glory is majestic. God's glory is fantastic. Creation longs for it. You as redeemed Christians long for it. The Holy Spirit longs for the time when God is glorified. And you know what? God's got a plan. God's got a purpose. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. That's it. God has already decided. He's foreknown. He's predestined. He's, he's called. He's summoned. Is another way to put that. He's, he's summoned and he's justified and he has glorified those whom he has called. And I love the way Paul finishes there and says he has glorified. Those he justified, he glorified. Past tense. Hands up if you look at your neighbor right now and say, wow, God is glorious. Hopefully a little bit. <laughs> but, but you know what? Paul is so certain that what God has planned and God had purposed is going to come true that he can write in Romans 8 verse 30, God has already glorified you. It's done. Suffering? Oh, you're going to suffer. I'm sorry you're going to suffer because you know how things are is not right. But boy... Boy, <laughs> take hope because there is such glory in store and it is so certain. Wow. Glennis, can I steal your thunder and read that last little bit? 
and your voice is gone anyway. (laughs) What then shall we say in response to these great things? God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Tell me now, who will give a, a charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Tell me, who can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Well, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? Or hardship? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? Or sword? All of these things are suffering and sharing in the sufferings of Christ. As it is written, for, we cons- for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Can suffering for Christ separate us from Christ? No! <laughs> in all these things we are super conquerors. That's actually what the word is. More than conquerors, it's the only time it's used in the whole Bible. It's, it's super conquerors. Uh, you should get a, a shirt made up with a big S, and you go to people and say, Hi, how are you doing? I'm a super conqueror. Even though I suffer, I am a super conqueror, not in myself, but through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen, brothers and sisters. Lord, you are great, you are glorious. Oh, Lord, we have tasted your glory, we have tasted and seen that you are good. Lord, that you are fantastic, that you are so wonderful, and yet, Lord, for that very reason we suffer as we know that things are not as they should be. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us to suffer, that you have, that you have brought meaning to frustration, that you have brought meaning to meaninglessness. Lord, that we have hope of glory, that you will reveal us as your children, that you will make all things new and that you will dwell with us. Oh, Lord, we cry, we groan, we plead. Come. Come, Lord Jesus, and make fulfilled and completed in us that which you have begun. We are convinced that you will, that you can, that you are doing this. Keep our eyes on you, Lord Jesus, that we may be dissatisfied this world this week, that we may groan with ever-increasing intensity for the day of your return. Amen. We're going to sing the last song. And can it be that I should gain an insight to my Savior's...